Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Fugue for Thought podcast. I'm Alan, and um, today we have part two of A Viola Player Speaks. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I posted the first part of my conversation with violist Jess Wyatt. Um, we talked a little bit about some viola repertoire and different things. If you haven't heard the first part of the conversation, go back and listen to that because um, Jess is very enjoyable to chat with and listen to. Today we have part two. We talk about her own experience uh, learning the violin and the viola, her relationship with the cello, um, fractional sized instruments, uh, the viola surgery that I teased about last time, um, some violin makers, instrument makers, the trial system, as well as places where you can hear Jess coming up in the future. Now, uh, like I said last time, be sure to take a look at all of the links that are in the description of each episode, which is where you're going to be able to find the featured guest for that episode. So in the description for this episode, you have links to all of Jess Wyatt's places on the internet, as well as her uh, Cambridge violin makers that she suggests she recommends, and some other interesting resources if there are any. So um, take a look at that. Go like me on Facebook. Go like Jess on Facebook. Uh, you know, do all of those things. Share with your friends. And uh, let's get started with a discussion. And, and what about you yourself as, as a teacher? You said you, you play the violin, you play the viola, you play the cello. You, you teach all three as well? Uh, I teach um, violin and viola. I used to teach a bit of cello. Um, my story as a cellist is a bit sort of checkered because I only, <laughs> I only took up the cello when I was a teenager. Um, I took up the violin when I was eight. Uh, the viola I took up on my teacher's su suggestion when I was 10, and I actually had done my grade five by then. Oh, wow. Um, so I'd been playing two years and had done my grade five, which now I realize that's quite exceptional as a teacher <laughs> I realized that's quite exceptional um, but to me it didn't seem you know it didn't seem at all I wasn't at all phased by it um, so yeah I at the moment I, I used to teach a little bit of cello but I don't anymore I teach violin and I teach viola but the thing about teaching viola is in schools not a lot of kids play the viola um, the, reason my is, the reason is it's a large instrument um, and not a lot of kids are you know tall enough to play it so but this this is the new thing that's coming you can get fractional size um violas and we as a violin teacher i would only start uh, a child on the viola if they'd already been playing the violin i would start them on the viola if the following circumstances were true about the child they were they were musical they didn't find it a problem to to read music because you need to be able to read the alto clef all oh, right um obviously and but the key thing is they're keen and their their hands are quite, are are you know a bit large. My hands are quite small, and I'm quite a I'm not I'm about five six, so uh, I'm not a large person. Um, and so you can my viola is quite a small viola, um, so mine is fifteen and five eighths. Um, inch back length um which is quite small for a viola a lot of professionals would play a, a larger viola sort of 15 and three quarter or 16 inch uh, viola um so yeah i would i would start a child on the viola if they express express a, a wish to do it and if they're secure on the violin and their technique is very secure so we we would we would transfer uh, suggest transferring to the, the viola then but we can also uh, which i have a little experience with we can also start a group of children on the viola itself um as their first instrument and not Straight a lot away. of kids 
not a lot of kids take the viola as as a first instrument right well, i have i have experienced starting a group of violas and um what we do is we play them the violin and we play them the viola and we we explain to them the difference between the instruments and often i'll say something like uh, because viola is my instrument i'll say this the viola is I will say that obviously (laughs) I'll say the viola is a darker instrument it's a it's a richer richer sound it's not as high it doesn't squeak as much as the violin and the kids will the kids will will sort of process that and think oh that sounds that sounds like I want to play that instrument so you have to give them the choice that's the thing a lot a lot of kids don't really get a choice sometimes in in council schools they'll just be given an instrument sometimes sometimes they'll get a a choice I'd, in an ideal world they'd all have a choice but uh, sometimes it's difficult for them to choose and they'll get you know landed with a, a viola or uh, sorry, a violin or a cello or a flute um but if they if they express a choice then we will definitely listen to that and say yes here's here's your viola uh, the problem with fractional sized violas is they're often not they don't sound as good as a large one and often the strings um what we do now is we cut down the string sizes because if you use a full size string on a fractional viola, say a, a three quarter size uh, violin strung as a viola or a half size violin strung as a viola, and you use a full size string on that, that's it disastrous sound wise. Because <laughs> really? the string is far too long. It just flaps around and it, it just <laughs> it sounds like a rubber band. That's what it sounds like. Uh, so you have to cut the string down. And then put it on the instrument, and then it sounds a bit better. There's also something you're laughing, but this is this is an issue. This is a huge issue. Um, so there's also something that's quite new um, that they're doing in Edinburgh right now, which sounds terrible, um, but it works. It's called hole in the heart violas. And oh what my, they do, that does sound yeah, horrible. That's not a good marketing it's, thing. It's, well, it, it works though. You get a little, a little violin that you really don't care about. You know, a very cheap violin, a student violin. They will only do this with a student violin. I can't stress that enough. <laughs> Your listeners, please, please do not do this to any any instrument. I am not advocating what I'm just about to say. Uh, they bore a hole underneath the bridge, Good Lord. On the soundpost side, and they connect the soundpost straight to the bridge. I d- again, I cannot stress this enough. Do not do this at home. Do not try this at home. Uh, so they, they connect the bridge straight to the soundpost. And it's a tiny little hole. It's probably about the size of your finger. Um, and I've seen this only once um, in my career. And the, the child plays the instrument. And suddenly the sound on the C string and the G string is just amazing. And it sounds like an adult full-size viola oh, that's wild I don't, I don't know who came up with that and how they found it out <laughs> I really don't know how that came about but someone came up with that and they do it they do it for student instruments in edinburgh um huh. so it's, it's quite extreme obviously uh, and that instrument then has to stay like that you can't repair an instrument sure. that's had a whole board in the front that is irreversible <laughs> well now um, now that you've described it i think the name is is maybe suitable i think actually yeah <laughs> it is it's a sort of oper- it's, it's almost an operation on your on your instrument so um i'm quite you know i'm very attached to my instruments and it's almost it's wow. a very personal thing um so 
I, uh, you know, I, I won't probably say this, but I have, I have two violas. I have my, my viola, my performing viola. And then the viola that I had before that, I still have as a spare. Um, and it's, it's an old viola. My, my, my viola that I play just now is a modern viola. Um, it's 15 and five eighths. Uh, it's made by Juliet Barker in Cambridge. And I saw her recently. Um, she's about, I think she's 82 now. Oh my. Uh, so, but she's quite a famous maker and she also runs classes and everything. Um, wow. So yeah, in Cambridge, I'm going to give them a little plug now because they have lots of instruments that they love to sell. Uh, they're, they, they're in Hartington Grove in Cambridge and their website is makeviolins.com. And oh. I was there in January and they have a whole row of beautiful instruments that are made by their makers, handmade instruments. And they sell them for, for really under the price that they should be sold. Um, for example, my viola was under the price it really should have been sold for a handmade, beautifully varnished, oil varnished instrument. Wow. Um, so, and they have a lot of these instruments because they make them down there and they, they have a hard time selling them um, because they just they haven't got the energy and time to put into promotion. Right. And that's, um, they're not, I mean, they are on Facebook, I think. Her son is on Facebook. But um, it's kind of hard when you make instruments to get them out there. So I think they're struggling with that. Um, it's funny you bring that up because just the other day I was thinking how cool it would be to to try to find a, a guest for the for the program uh, that was a, an instrument maker. Um, mm. So I will check them out. Because that's yeah. the thing. I think maybe that some people think, you know, with um, Amati or Stradivarius, that was like, that only happened a few hundred years ago, but people still make handmade instruments. Uh, mm. And, it, you know, it's, it's an art that I understand nothing of. It's a very, very, uh, I mean, I know quite on Facebook, I know quite a few in- instrument makers um, just because of being a, a viola player and being a string player. And I know quite a few of the ones in Scotland. Um, and I've actually got some on, the, on Facebook. I follow them and it's beautiful. You just can see these instruments just being made. And it's such, a, such an amazing skill. It's a very, very I can't stress enough how skilled you need to be to thickness the plates right down and do, you know, carve out the scrolls and carve the F holes. So precise. They work to such precise dimensions. Um, And they are just some of the most skilled woodworkers probably in the world that are violin makers. And it's Um, it's a craft that lasts uh, with some of these, you know, more famous violins and, and cellos and things, hundreds of years, right? People oh, still yes. have, you know, Stradivarius and Amati and, and these instruments that have been centuries old. Yeah. So I have handled, I think the oldest an- instrument I've ever handled is a Gaspar de Sa- Gasparo da Salo cello. And those are incredibly rare. They're in, if you go to the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, uh, Gasparo de Salo, uh, that's his nickname. Bertilotti is his real name. Um, I don't know quite why he was nicknamed, but Gaspar de Salo, um, he didn't make a lot of instruments. He made quite weird and wacky ones. He, he, he didn't follow the norm, and he's sort of famous because of that. And in the Ashmolean, there's some crazy instruments he made, like kind of lopsided, very modern looking. <laughs> um, but the cello I, I, I held was, was um, what's her name? Vivian Mackey in, in Glasgow, cellist and um, Alexander te- Technique um, teacher, she has this amazing, incredibly, va- I, 
it, I don't know. I don't want to know how valuable it is. <laughs> it's so valuable that it, it was copied recently um, by a lot of instrument makers. And what's really unique about these instruments is he was a quite obviously individual and you know on the scroll of, in, of string instruments there's this fluting this this curve you know it's, it's all right. sort of curved this this cello scroll was unfluted and you know clearly he just thought i I'll, i want i want a cello that doesn't look like the rest so i'm just going to leave this one personality and, that's that's definitely a, a feature of his instruments. I'm quite into instruments. I can talk in, all day about Stradivari and stuff. Um, but you you can't put a price on instruments like that because you will never get anything that historical or made in like that again. It's just a tiny piece of history that you right. have. Um, and if that gets broken, sure you can claim on insurance, but it will it's never exist. You'll never get it to its its former state. Um, so that's why these instruments are quite so valuable. They're just a tiny piece of history, and they sound amazing. And, so, and even some of these like like world famous performers, um, they they still get these on loan. I understand that they're from you know yeah. private benefactors or whatever oh, that yes, kind yeah. of just lend so we, to them. Yep. Yeah, that and banks as well. Banks buy them up. Banks are, are buying a lot of instruments just now as investments. Such a secure investment, uh, so you'll get you'll get sort of very rich benefactors going to auctions, the Teresio auction, the auctions. They'll just they'll just pick up a Strad, you know, put it in their vault, and Jeez. and then if they <laughs> if they find I don't know how it works because I haven't applied. You have to apply for these things. There's a company called the oh, Strad Trust, I think, or if you know, if you're famous, you might get approached sure. by your agent. Might get approached by one of these benefactors and say, "Well, we have this, we have this um, instrument in our in our vault. Which would your player like to play it?" And of course, you say, "Yes, of course." Yeah, um, right. But there are rules. There are very strict rules. I've heard of the rules that that go with this this um, this loan. So, for example, you must not let it out of your sight. You must never touch it um except on the bits where you have to touch it you must polish it if you're a cellist you're not allowed to wear blue jeans because that um will stain the edges uh. of the cello there's, there's all sorts of rules and regulations that you know are, are in place to preserve the instruments um and preserve them in their state so and as obviously it as it should be and you hear the, these news articles about people leaving them on trains and uh. there was a guy recently who stepped off the stage and um, I think he fell off and Cracked just fell on his Stradivarius. I think he just fell on it. Oh. Uh, so I think that was pretty disastrous. Um, uh, <laughs> so uh, things do happen to them. They are just pieces of wood. They are beautifully crafted, but they're only made of wood. Sure. So accidents happen. And thin. Terrible like accidents. Uh, yeah. Compared to something like a trumpet or sure, um, much a more French durable. horn. Yeah, they're made of metal, so... And so exactly. from, you know, the, some of the cellos, uh, violins are kind of the famous, again, Stradivarius Amati. What about violas? Do, did those kind of fela, famous makers make violas as well? Oh, yes. Well, Amati, the story with violas is quite, um, it's quite difficult in a way. Um, it's quite problematic. I like saying that word. Sorry. I've, I've come to say problematic it's, it's, a lot. It's um, a good word. It, it, it's a good word um, because now I don't know how much you know about the history of string instruments, but the violin hasn't changed a lot. I mean, right. it has changed. 
the cello, the violin family came from the viols, um, which can also be called the viola da gamba, the viola of the leg. And the viola that we play today is the viola da braccia, which is the arm viola, literally. Um, but you have in history, in the historical development of the string family, um, we had different sizes of instruments. So we didn't always have the violin and the cello and the bass and the viola as they are now. We had a range of them. So throughout the development, there's been sort of, we were, the forms that we know now have only been crystallized in that form for you know 100 200 years i like i think historically right. i'm not an instrument historian but we only just got those forms in in the big picture of things they started out quite different and the problem with instruments uh, like amati and stradivarius yes they did make violas and if you go to the ashmolean museum you will see the hill collection which they have uh, i think two amati violas Gaspar de Salo, um, Stradivarius made, I think, 10 or 11 violas. Uh, one of them, I heard Martin say this, one of them is playable. Um, oh, that's Probably it. only one. Probably only the one. Uh, for the simple reason, they are far too big for us to play. And uh. the modern ones, the, the, the ones that come, come have been changed, uh, they started off as tenor violas. So if you can imagine an instrument that's between the size of a cello and a modern day viola, it was massive. So the back on the arm. line is 50. Yeah, so on the arm. So only very, very <laughs> big people can play them, first of all. But mine is 15 and a half inches, say 15 and a half inches. These violas tend to be around 17, 18 inches back oh length. That is massive. Um, so but they're, they're historical. So we don't, we don't like to cut them down. Um, sure, and course. some of them have ones that are playable have been cut down. And so you that, wouldn't borrow all of those either. Yeah, <laughs> no, but you know, they, their edges have been trimmed. Basically their wow. instrument has been made to a smaller size than it was originally, which is a travesty, obviously, but obviously, you know, we want to be able to play them. So it's a compromise. Right. Uh, so you'll get, You'll get the Amati violas that I saw recently, I think were about 18 inches. So they're, they're just far too big to be useful. Um, I bet they sound gorgeous, but it, the viola is quite acoustically, it's an imperfect instrument anyway. Right. Uh, so the historical violas we have are, are limited because of the size issue. Um, and no one's, I mean, we don't really know how they were played, these huge instruments. Uh, it's quite difficult to, to know, but clearly they were. Um, but we in orchestras today, you know, it's it's, it's quite rare to to see to see a. Well, it, it's actually not that rare. I've held an Amati viola. Oh, really? What often happens with yeah? What often happens with these these incredibly old um, Italian instruments is they'll get you know mostly reconstructed. Um, They'll be found in a mess. I, the, the one I held was just found as a wreck, and he was a luthier who played it, so he he tenderly oh, okay. reconstructed it. Um, so a lot of them are just in a bit of a, a state and not playable. And I always forget that that you mentioned earlier. You know, uh, students that will play uh, different sized cellos or violins. I always forget that the viola does not have a one standard size to begin with. 
No, it doesn't. And, um, and, and a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, that seems but that seems like such a strange thing then. So your your different length viola means that the, the tuning, the tension on your strings is gonna be different depending on uh, well To some extent it would have a, to be, right? To some extent. Um we try I mean, you to the um, same pitch, but then we're at, we're at the same pitch, obviously. We try to um if you talk to an instrument maker, they will they will definitely. Um, I know one called Alan. He lives he lives quite near to me, um, and we have <laughs> extensive discussions about uh, the scale, the the fingerboard scale, and the length of the fingerboard. Right, and that's that's all it comes down to is the length and the spaces on the fingerboard um, for your fingers. Um, and yes, they do. Larger instruments have a larger, uh, longer fingerboard, and the spaces between the notes are further apart. Um, and the strings, obviously, we get. If you have a larger viola, you have to buy different strings. Uh, so just a, a, um, not, di- not different strings, but when you order your string, you'll ha- you'll say the size of your viola, and they will provide one that will fit your viola. Uh, so, yeah, it's 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 it takes a bit, bit of getting used to. It. If you're a violinist, everything comes in the right size. Right. <laughs> if you're a violist, then it doesn't. So then, because that seems so odd, because. Um, Say for example, a, a pianist shows up for a you know a concerto in a concert hall, and and they have a number of of pianos, and he plays them, and he goes this one, and then a violinist obviously has their own instrument. But does that not mean that a violist cannot switch kind of willy nilly between instruments because each one is going to have kind of a different fingerboard issue with the? Uh, well, I mean, a good a good string player, like for example, I play the violin and the viola, so it's like the difference between size of a violin and a viola trying to play in tune so i just automatically someone with a good ear will will adapt immediately um might take them a few minutes um yeah if i played i've played different sizes of violas in my time so i've played a 15 and a half i played a 16 and sometimes occasionally you'll get this happened at the last weekend uh you will say you know viola players are quite friendly like that i say oh that's a lovely viola can i just try that um and we'll try each other's violas and and it's all very you know matey and um say oh i like i like the c string on that one um so you know it it doesn't affect us as much as you would think um so it it, it, the thing is a string play is automatically attuned to the very slight differences of where your fingers go on the fingerboard um and we don't use visual cues at all um unlike say guitar guitar players it's all very much um muscle memory and this your ear is just so attuned to it so right you know if if you're if you're someone who doesn't struggle with intonation issues anyway and you ch- you try a different instrument it'll take you maybe an hour to get used to it um and then you'll be fine i mean it doesn't it doesn't bother me a lot right uh, but that's i think i've been told i have very good intonation so i'm sure that helps it doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't sort of bother me um but maybe it bothers, you know, I can't, I can only speak personally. Maybe sure. it bothers violists. That they, but, you know, we, we get used to our instruments. So I've got my instrument and I know how it behaves. Um, and there's no reason for me to really play another one right. unless something happens to mine. So don't say, don't say it's that. not like pianists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I've just had it repaired. I've just had a new bridge put on it. Um, so, and I've got a really good case. I'm so pleased with my new case. It's Very new. nice. Uh, Yes, 
very expensive. Could I have could I have possibly seen a picture of that on on the Facebook page or something? That seems yeah, to that's sell, I believe, but it it's, is. Yeah, it's it's a um, with violist we have very little choice with cases. Violists have huge amount of choice, uh, right. but for some reason we're a neglected instrument and we don't have a lot of choice. So I bought myself a new case that is shaped and it's also very very secure. Apparently it's made of it's made of. Um, called abs and someone told me that's the same thing that they make those hard suitcases out of you know that you oh, nice. take on planes yeah um so it's pretty secure it won't and that's because i want to go take it on flights and i want to take it on the train and it's nice and light as well so how about so how about instruments on flights that's been a thing lately in europe There's oh yeah that's, violins that's not bad. allowed that's... and what's 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 all that about even the latest even violins, yeah. So we have a sort of, I'm on the Strad, I get the Strad, which is a sort of magazine for string players, and I'm on their website um, as well. And what will happen <laughs> right now is whenever a violinist or a violist or a cellist has problems getting onto a flight, they'll be named and shamed on the Strad. Um, <laughs> and currently, um, I think it's Norwegian Airlines forced the Dante, the Dante, the Danish, no, it's the Danish string quartet's violist, to do a whole flight with his, I think it was Ryanair, I can't remember, with his viola on his lap in the case, um, because they wouldn't put it in the overhead lockers. Um, so your budget, our airlines are pretty bad at this sort of thing. You want to go for a good airline that has a policy, and more, most of them are getting better. Um, uh, having policies on instruments um, on flights, uh, ideally. But they could. I, I tried to take my viola to Canada with me on Aer Lingus, and I kept ringing them up and saying, "Is this going to be okay? This is the dimension of the case." And they kept saying to me, "No, we can't guarantee that you'll be able to take it on. We can't. It's up to the discretion of the airport, the airport staff." And uh, I was not very happy with this because I, I, at that point, I had quite a big case. Uh, so I ended up not taking it. And I was quite glad I didn't take it because um, the overhead lockers on one of the planes, was ex- they were extremely small. And I don't think my viola would have fitted. Um, what <laughs> happens is if you, get, if you have an extremely valuable instrument, um, I heard Martin actually was talking about this at the weekend. He said the following happens. Either you refuse to get on the plane which is very possible. Hilary Han um, slept at the airport, I think, with her family because they, they, you know, they were being really difficult mm. about it. Or you're like Yuri Bashmet, who is an individual character. He's brilliant. Yes. Met. <laughs> he is absolutely brilliant. And he was refused, I think. And he took out his big um, testori, I think. It's an amazing, huge instrument. He took it out of its case and then carried it in his arms onto the flight. And he said, this is my baby this is my baby. Treat this as a baby. And you're allowed to take babies on flights. So why not a viola? A priceless instrument. Another way to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's very frustrating for musicians because there is no way that we can put that in the hold. The cargo hold, sure. Yeah. The instruments, often there's photos of the instruments after they come out of the hold and you don't want to see them. The necks have snapped off cellos. and the bellies have collapsed on bases and the sound post is obviously dislodged you know these these things that you can see that the moment peep someone says you have to put it in the hold you refuse because you know what will happen you know to better 
You know. Well, but that's what I, I, I feel like a, a double bass, a cello, you know, bringing a double bass into the cabin, I, I can see problems with that. But a violin, really? I know. A violin, a violin definitely will fit in the overhead lockers. A viola similarly will fit in the overhead lockers. Um, cellos, you have to book a seat. Um, but, we're, you know, the cellists are used to that now. Sure. Um, I just read something from a cellist, which was great. It was on the Strad website. He said, for years now, I've been t- traveling with my cello in a, in, a ba- in a brown bag. And in my brown bag, I keep my cello, my spare underwear, and my music. <laughs> and that comes onto the flight with me. Because I, I, and I know which planes I can do this on. I know which types, airlines, which I can fly on. I know which planes wow. it will fit on. Uh, so I, I do it that way. I think, I think that, that might have been Colin Carr, the famous cello, English cellist Colin Carr um, ah. said that on the Strad. I, I just, I came across, I think I posted it on my Facebook page, the link to that, because I just thought it was fascinating. Um, people like Hilary Han um, posting the contents of their cases and how they deal with their travel requirements. Because obviously if you're a gigging, you're a constantly a soloist, you have to, to travel an awful lot. And, and you can't yeah. afford to, to be back you know, behind a week or something if, if you've no. got what, a, a day before no. a performance or something. Yeah, you have to almost the day of the performance they arrive, you know, they'll they'll get off their flight and then go straight to the concert hall. It depends where you're touring, who you're touring with, sure. um, whether you're going to Australia, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> Um, I think a lot of concert goers don't realize that, that like the conductor or the guest conductor or the, the soloist, you know, walked off a plane while you were having lunch that day or something like mm, that's I difficult to fathom because I hate traveling and I don't have to perform. Yeah. So it's it's pretty difficult for for the life of, you know, say Nicola Benedetti. She's jetting all over the world. Right. And one day she'll be in Paris and the next day she'll be back in London and and she comes to Scotland quite a lot. Um so yeah, it's kind of difficult as a touring musician. Two more questions, maybe. Um, yep. So, so uh, violinist, violist, talked about that before. But you said you've played the cello, but not so much anymore. What are the challenges of someone? Uh, that seems like a a slightly less common kind of switch from a violist to a cello or mm. back. What's what's that like for you into the cello? I love playing the cello. I find I'm playing the cello extremely relaxing. I think it's because you sit down. <laughs> I don't know. Why. <laughs> Make a difference, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't actually personally possess a cello at the moment, um, so I can't practice it. I went through a phase of playing the cello a lot when I was a teenager, and the problem I came across was this. Um, as a violinist and a viola player, we have a specific hand position, um, and a cellist's hand position is somewhat completely different um, from the violin and the viola. Um, also, the bow hold is different. So I was told as a teenager very firmly by my teachers who are violin and viola, please do not play the cello you will ruin your violin and viola technique Uh and as a teenager i rebelled against this and continued (laughs) playing the cello and i loved it um and i still play i find it very difficult to play um for a long period of time because my fingers get blisters on i have quite good calluses on my fingers already my left hand fingers but um playing the cello is completely different The, the the strings are much thicker right um and just the physical motion of putting your fingers down on the strings you have to press them quite hard so playing for a long period of time unless you're a cellist you know sure um, 
it's quite tricky. I've got a good cello bow hold. Uh, so I did take cello, while I was doing all this as a teenager, I did take cello lessons. Um, okay. So I was given, I was given sort of thorough grounding, well, mostly thorough grounding in cello technique. When I was teaching in Angus last year cello, I um, became a lot more interested in cello technique. So I tried to improve my own cello technique. Te- technique because i was aware that my hand position was non non-ideal being um sort of a, a violinist first so i was trying very hard to to um to change that basically a cello hand position is very much right angles uh to the cello um and right. violinists tend to tip the hand back just because it's just the physical way that you hold your hand um when you're sitting down as opposed to standing up it's it's if you look at a violinist and a cellist playing, you'll, you'll see the difference sure. next time you're in orchestra. Um, so that, that's, that's a challenge. Um, I wish I had a cello here, but I don't have enough space for one. Uh, whether I'll teach a cello in the future, I just don't know. Um, I'd, love, I'd love to play. It's sort of my hobby, playing the cello. I shouldn't say oh, really? that because I bought it. Um, <laughs> but it's sort of my, my hobby. <laughs> I just, huh. um, at school, my, having, I did have a distinct advantage because I'd grown up playing string instruments so i can remember my cello teacher when i was in sixth form saying yes i think you should get the elgar cello concerto and i was like what what (laughs) that's not that's not reasonable i still have it and you can play that on either of your instruments apparently yeah um i just thought that wow that i shouldn't be playing that that's that that's crazy um i can play a little bit of it but not all of it obviously um but i love i just love the tunes that you get on the cello and the sound of the cello the cello just the the the... but also when i started i was so frustrated because i i've i'd heard great cellists and i thought i want to make that sound but obviously i couldn't because i just started learning it so it was really frustrating being a really you know grade eight violinist and and just a sort of beginner cellist <laughs> so i've i've improved a lot since then but i still would need to, to practice if i was to play in public or anything yeah I've, and i've got to imagine uh, that, that the double bassist is kind of the rarest breed of of your family of instruments no i suppose so yeah i mean orchestras only have about two or three big orchestras will have more but um bassists the bassists are so rare that they get they they tend to be a bit sort of what's the word um cocky and in, in that they'll turn up yeah no they're, they're lovely people bassists they tend to be very friendly <laughs> um i know the bassist of the seo is from siberia he's from he's amazing he's from siberia nikita he's from siberia and he's just so so personable and he's amazing um but they didn't know that because there are so few of them they tend to mix and match their orchestras quite a lot they'll you'll, uh-huh. they'll turn up in a lot of orchestras they freelance a lot bassists so one will play in about three orchestras because you know th- Spaces. Yeah, they mix and match um, their, their spots. So they kind of have that freedom because there are so few of them. Sure. They can kind of choose which gigs to do. And I think, I imagine, I'm not a bassist, but I imagine that's how it's, it works. There's a lot of, there will be a lot of work, but there's also quite a lot of competition as well with Viola sure. too in auditions. There are, there are a few of us, but then the few of us that there are, there is always a surprising number when it comes to auditions. I'm like, oh, hello. have you have you run into the same people at auditions before? Is it oh, that, yeah, kind of, that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, I have. Yeah, there's there's a, there's there's a, you know there's a freelance crowd, and um, you see them everywhere. You see them at the gigs and the auditions, and you say, oh, hello, how are you? You again? Um, yeah. 
So, and it's, it happens in all instruments, I'm sure, but right. um, in the rarer instruments where there's more freelance players and, and fewer, fewer actual chairs in orchestras, you know, jobs in orchestras, right. um, they, they, you know, viola jobs come up quite rarely in Britain, quite very rarely, because huh. once you get one, you hang on to it. <laughs> um, so, you know, they come out pretty rarely. So the, the, the competition for those chairs is fierce when they come up. Um, and often, I don't know if you know about the trial system at all. No. In Britain, we have a we have a, a system where it's quite difficult. You get you have an audition. I'll just talk briefly about this. Um, you have an audition. Well, you get invited to audition. You send your CV off. Then you get invited to the audition. If you are, um, if they like you, and they, you stand out from the crowd, um, you will then get invited to trial with that particular orchestra. Um, and the trial is can last anything from months to, you know, six months to years. Really? A, oh, yeah. There's been people on trial for, for a year. And it's, it's quite unfair because you know, when you're on trial, you are working for that orchestra, but you're also not working for that. Or you're, it's like a sort of date in a way. You're... Um, <laughs> The, the sort of the orchestra's getting used to you. They're deciding whether they like you. Um, trial period, yeah. Yeah, it's a trial period, um, and so therefore you're you're maybe still applying for other jobs and doing other trials at the same time, uh, but you're not certain that you've got the job until they say yes, you've got the job, or no, you haven't got the job. Um, so it's a difficult system in Britain. That seems I, to be very much in their favour. Yeah, it is quite a lot. It's different in uh, the US, I believe. Um, but I don't know very much about, I think you have first round and second round and third round auditions possibly on the day. Huh. Um, so it, it is different for different countries, but we have the, the trial system, um, which is quite ruthless actually. And if you, if you put a foot out of line on your trial, then you're instantly out. Um, I think I have personally not been on trial with anyone. Uh, so I can't it really. It sounds comment. so imposing the way you say it. Yeah. If you play a wrong note, if you, um, say the wrong thing to your desk partner, if you, if you make some comment offhand about someone in the orchestra and that's someone's friend, you're speaking to someone's friend, it won't be in your favor. It will not be in your favor. And you have to be so careful about what you say to whom. And it is a bit intimidating when I freelance. I, I, I shouldn't say this really because I'm on a podcast, but <laughs> I find it quite scary in a way to come into these orchestras where I, I haven't, I have I don't know anyone. I mean, I do know some people in some well, orchestras, sure. but uh, it's quite intimidating situation to be thrown in and then you're sight reading. You're usually sight reading unless they've bothered to send you the music and you're sight reading and all these new people are here and you're getting used to the orchestra and the new conductor all at once. So it's quite a, it's a lot to take in and um, yeah. So it's, it's a difficult freelance musicians. We might seem to be very happy on the outside, but we're <laughs> secretly, if we've got a gig coming up we're, we're just sort of, we're like a duck paddling really, really fast <laughs> under the water. Like I've got to, I've got to practice that piece. And then I've got to do that concert and I'm just, ah, it's all a bit too much. And they've got teaching as well. So, you know, <laughs> so, so potentially one of the reasons it's something like, uh, like you said before with chamber stuff is maybe a little more, uh, intimate and, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a bit more, um, you're more relaxed in a way, sure. in, in a way, because you have more control over things. And, but then it's also more, I don't know if, I don't know if it's the right word, just a little more naked or more exposed from the standpoint yeah. where you, you know, you don't have anyone else to kind of to rely on in a. I quite like that actually, um, because I don't, 
in in a section of say eight or ten violas you have a, a, a section a tutti sound so you're all sure. playing the same thing and you don't have much choice about your expression and your um you know your tone control it's all it's all a sort of it's a it's a collective sound and whereas you're playing quartet there's only one of me so I, you know there's two violins but we're all playing sure. our own parts um so i like the intimacy of being able to give my my part more expression and listen more closely to my tone and listen to my dynamics and it's it makes everything easier actually just being mm. able to hear yourself in orchestra sure. you can't often hear yourself and that <laughs> makes it hard <laughs> and so, in, in orchestra are are violas the section in my impression rarely divided or, or is that wrong uh, it depends on your piece. Sure. Um, so in more romantic works, you'll, you'll be divided into say three parts, four parts, oh, um, wow. a different, you know, Elgar, um, Mahler, you'll, Divisi is very common in viola. Okay. And okay. uh, so often, well, five, you know, four, three or four or five is quite in, quite unusual, but, um, two is very common, a lower okay. part and an it's extremely sure. common in orchestra music um so I, I, for years i got used to playing the lower part i just that was my default and i sat in orchestra and just always played the lower part even if i was sitting on the other side which was embarrassing <laughs> um so i just automatically play the lower part i'm now u- more used to playing the upper part because i've been leading in, in a few orchestras so it just depends and when you sit sit down in orchestra you've just got to be ultra aware of where you are first of sure. all um, and which part you're playing. And occasionally in orchestra, I'll play the wrong part. And I'm just like, oh, oops, I just forgot <laughs> to play the right part again. <laughs> so, um, so do you have any other, any other gigs coming up? You have, you have Shostakovich in, in October. Any other yeah, exciting I have, things? I have, um, what do I have? I have also, I've just been asked to play in a, in a Baroque um, orchestra concert in April. That's just stepping, sort of helping them out. Don't really, I think we're playing sort of CP Bach, we're playing Baroque repertoire. So on the Baroque viola or no? On modern viola with, okay, with a Baroque bow. Uh, yes, she said it's Carl Friedrich Abel, JC Bach and Earl of Kelly. Interesting. So that's that. That sounds very English, that last one. Yeah, Earl of Kelly. He's he's a local player, um, a local player, local composer, um, Earl of Kelly. So Scottish from this area in Fife, actually. Oh wow! Because um, there's Kelly Castle quite close to um, Crail, I think, which is down down the coast from St Andrews. So it's it, that's a local composer, which is nice. In the summer, I'm doing an opera uh, with St Andrews Opera, and that oh, which is one? Um, Britain Turn of the Screw. Oh, wow. So that will be interesting. I've also done, with that opera company, I've done other Britain operas. We've done Albert Herring, which was great. That was so good. It was a, it's a comic opera. I would recommend that opera. It's just so funny. It's really huh. funny. Uh, so I've done that, and we did also Rape of Lucretia, which is a bit more serious. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it, Turn of the Screw. I've read the Henry, Henry James um, right. re- recently, yes. So... I'm quite, I'm quite um, interested. I don't know the piece at all, so I'll, it's new to me. Um, so that'll be that's in June. So and that's in St Andrews, and we're touring it to the Borders, Berwick, I think, uh, Haddo House, I think, or so, and maybe somewhere else. Usually we go to Perth Concert Hall, 
Um, but if you check out, uh, if your listeners check out the St. Andrew's Opera website, I'm sure they have a website. Um, it'll also be on the University of St. Andrew's um, website um, in June. Let me just find my diary and I'll tell you when that is. It's mid-June, I think. Yeah, so obviously your listeners might be based all over the world. I'm not really sure. Um, here we are. Um, opera rehearsal, Sitzprobe. Do you know what a Sitzprobe is? I'm not so sure I do. <laughs> it is a, a rehearsal with all the um, with the vocal singers and all the orchestra, but not staged. And oh, right. officially, they're, officially, they're supposed to be off copy by then, but often they aren't, uh, which means that they should have learned their parts. But <laughs> they, often they sort of need the music. Uh, our, our opera is, the first night is the 22nd of June. It runs 22nd, 23rd. Uh, 24th in St Andrews and then we tour it to Aberdeenshire Sterling on the 28th uh, Sterling Macrobert on the 28th Haddo House in Aberdeenshire um, that's a matinee at 3pm and the Maltings in Berwick on the 8th of July so that'll be that'll be a good good tour so um, if anyone's going to be in your part of the world then uh, they should go to one of yeah. a multiple yeah, multiple yeah, check, check it out. Um, and often I do concerts in St. Andrews itself, um, often in the churches there, or the Younger Hall is a, is a big concert venue. And our lunchtime concert is in the Bayer Theatre, uh, which has a lot of music going on now in St. Andrews itself, and that has a website. So, um, And our lunchtime concert is the 9th, I believe it's the 19th of October. I would have to check that. Counting um, down the days. Uh, yeah, I think... <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a Wednesday, and it's the 19th of October in the Bayer Theatre, and it'll be like 1, one o'clock or one ten, I think, something like that. So, Excellent. Um, well, I'll get, I'll get all, the, um, all the links that we will put in the description for anyone who, who is interested in checking those out. I would, I would uh, like to be there myself. It's a bit far. It's probably uh, a bit far for you, isn't it? But, but that, sounds, that sounds very exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. So we shall stay in touch, and yeah, any, any new exciting things... And I want to get in touch with a violin maker or an instrument maker. Okay, any well, I can definitely definitely put you in touch. I'm just um, Chris Beamant is his name. That's Judith Barker's son, and he's quite. He, I think he would be up for it. He's quite techy, um, and he makes. He's a guitarist, but he's also a really good cellist. And he makes. He's an instrument maker. Just um, that's his life. Wow. He's quite busy. Um, he's, they do a lot of teaching there. They basically run courses every weekend they have sort of seasons of courses like terms of courses and in oh, the wow. summer they're incredibly busy um because people come from all over the world to learn to make violins with them um because That's they're one of the awesome. major yeah so juliet barker's son is called chris beamant uh, and makeviolins.com is their homepage. Um, and he actually, when I went there, he, he um, was asking me for help to publicize their instruments. Awesome. Um, they just wanted to like, you know, get, sell some of them, you know. Well, cool. So, I'm not sure that yeah. an international audience would be helpful, but. Yeah, um, but still. It, look on the Strad website. Um, okay. And there'll be a directory. I have the directory probably somewhere. Well, uh, thanks very much, Jess, um, for all of your insight into the instrument and kind of your, your industry. That, that was very cool. And if I were on your side of the world, I would come see you. So let's stay in touch. And well, It's um, been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much, Alan. Maybe and, we will um, see you again or hear from you again in the future. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so right. much Thank for you. asking Thanks. me.
Well, that's all for our uh, discussion with Jess Wyatt. I hope that she will be back soon. Um, I have enjoyed chatting with her, and um, I've heard from a few of you folks that say you guys really enjoyed um, listening to her discussions and explanations as well. She's very enjoyable to chat with, uh, so she'll probably be back in the future. Check her out on Facebook and on her blog, A Viola Player Writes, hence the name of this episode. Um, find me at www.fugforthought.de, fug, F-U-G, U-E. Again, all of the links are in the episode descriptions, so check those out. Go like Jess Wyatt's Facebook page, um, like my page, share the podcast with your friends, share the blog with your friends, all of those friendly social media things. Uh, we have a bunch of new episodes coming up in the near future that I'm very excited about, but I might ratchet the podcast down to an episode every two weeks instead of currently about 10 days. Um, Subscribe through iTunes, where you can get it uh, on your mobile through the podcast app, uh, or through Podbean, or just check the website for updates, because there's an article uh, associated with each new episode. So check all of those things out, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.